what we're about to do is we're launching into a three-week series on prayer. This Sunday, we will finish off the book of James, which was a study, book study that we were in, and the, and the last chapter of James has to deal with prayer. And, and then we'll talk for two more weeks on prayer. And it's exciting because of this. Uh, nothing else in my life has shaped me more than prayer. There's no other person, no other thing that has had a bigger impact on who I am and who I've become and what I value than prayer. And I don't mean that I've prayed more than anyone in this room. I don't mean anything like that. I just mean that those times, those moments, those things that I've heard, those things that I've seen and or realized in prayer times, the, the connection that I've felt with God, those moments have, have made me who I am. And if people matter... And if changed lives are something that we're excited about and it's what matters to us, then talking about prayer is exciting because nothing else really shapes people more than prayer. And so it's going to be kind of fun to dive into that. Uh, and so let's open a prayer and then we'll, we'll go to James. Father, just this morning that you would somehow um, speak to us and, and draw us closer to you, that this topic of prayer would become a little less confusing and and maybe a little bit more exciting to us. And we love you. We want to know you more. In Christ's name, amen. So if you can, go ahead and turn to the book of James. James chapter 5. James is in the New Testament towards the back, right after the book of Hebrews. James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. And this is the last, like I said, the last little section of the book of James. And this is how it begins. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. And if any one of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed because the, uh, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, this, is, this thing was giving me fits. And I was up till 11 o'clock last night. And, and this passage, was, it's just a tough nut to crack. And so I dusted off the old Greek New Testament, which I don't really enjoy doing, and things like that. And so let me at least show you kind of one of the reasons why it's difficult. When we come to this passage, we immediately grab onto the word sick and healed and those kinds of things. And, and I think the reason we do that is because is those things, how do sick people become well if, if like they're not drinking tea and medicine and, I don't know, getting sleep? How do pick, sick people get well if it's not for those kinds of things? Well, if it happens through prayer, then it's miraculous, is it not? And so we see those words and we start going, ooh, ooh, is God promising to do in our midst the things we read about in the Gospels, like where people are coming back from the dead and sick people are getting healed and, and all this crazy stuff's going on. And, and is this a promise from God that that's going to be happening? So we kind of get enamored with this whole idea of, of sick and healing, and that becomes the dominant thinking. And in the Roman Catholic Church from early on, this was what led to the doctrine called, uh, or the, the sacrament called extreme unction. Now, extreme unction, I'll just read the top part. This is from kind of the official Catholic uh, definition book. It's like Catholic Wikipedia. Um, The anointing of the sick can be administered to any member of the faithful who, 
having reached the use of reason, getting to that age, begins to be in danger by reason of illness or old age. And it goes on to talk in the bottom section just about if somebody's kind of sick and they're going to be dying, but it's going to be a protracted thing, you know, it's uh, how do you do it? Do you do this thing once? Do you do it on an ongoing basis? But it's not limited to, but we see it most in that last rites kind of a, a ceremony. That's where we see that extreme unction. And so in the movies, it's, it's the person who's like got one breath left and the priest is asking them to confess their sins so that he can pray for them and bless them and anoint them. And so again, this whole idea is, is at the last hour, the last minute, the last breath, you're able to confess your sins, be forgiven, be reconciled to God so that he will accept you. Now, in the Protestant tradition, it, it didn't reach its official capacity, but when the Protestant um, side of things looked at the verse, this is where we picked up on it. The Protestant church doesn't have priests. They're not as ritualistic and so what they grabbed hold of is that phrase right there. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Prayer offered in faith. And so the Protestant tradition is you get people to pray for you. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the elders because we don't have that distinction between, you know, a, a priest and a non-priest. We're all the priesthood of believers. It's one of the big doctrines of the Reformation. So it doesn't necessarily matter as long as it's a believer. That's, that's someone you can go to. And oil, you know, it's not the oil that heals, it's the prayer offered in faith that heals. So whether you got oil or not, the idea is you pray in faith. And so in the Protestant side, it led to praying for other people or asking people to pray for you. In the mild sense, that's where it led. And so we inherit a tradition where when we get together and pray, we're, we're praying about like, Every little physical ailment there is, and, and then, you know, you go round and round long enough, and pretty soon someone's praying about Aunt Mildred's, like, big toe, and Uncle Harry's tennis elbow, and, and, and it's, like, kind of a crazy thing, and, and this, is, this is a book on prayer by Philip Yancey, my wife was reading through, and he puts a bunch of different letters in here from people, and this is how Vernon starts his letter. I would estimate that 80% of the prayer requests I hear in church center in physical healing. I can understand that. Suffering tends to chase away everything else. But I wish I heard more prayers about poverty and persecution and injustice, a different kind of pain. You know, and I think that's a true part of our experience with religion right now is we've come to have sickness and physical things kind of dominate our thinking in terms of prayer. On the extreme end of the Protestant side of stuff is what would be called kind of the health and wealth approach to prayer. And that's taking this as a flat promise that if you pray in faith, you're going to be made well from whatever physical ailment you have. If you just pray in faith or go to Benny Hinn, you know, and, and then you're going to be made well. And, and that's not, it's not even conceivable. Everyone in this room is going to die. And the Bible, I mean, the Bible makes that more clear than anything else, but we're all going to eventually reach a point where we die because right now it is not yet that time where we're going to be clothed with that kind of resurrection body or, or be, be you know, ushered into the presence of God where there's eternal life. We're, we're not in that stage. And so if this idea that, you know, it's your lack of faith why you have sickness, if that was true, like we would, we'd never get sick and die. We just live and live and live and live. I mean, that just can't be possible to set, to say God is promising something that he, you know, obviously wouldn't deliver on. Does that make sense? Not only that, but you see guys like Paul, 
you know, and he prays. Remember the story? He's got kind of, we don't know what it was, but he has a physical ailment. And he refers to it as his thorn in his flesh. The thing is kind of like a burn in his saddle. It's, it's bugging him. It's making life difficult. And so three times he prays to God. And the guy has healed other people. He obviously has faith. And he's a righteous man. And, and he prays to God three times. God doesn't remove whatever this thing is. And Paul says, you know, God wants it there. He's going to use that in my life because when I am weak, then I am strong. The fact that there's this, this constant reminder that I'm, that I'm mortal, that, that I can get sick, that I can die, that, that kind of thing keeps me focused on God rather than like you know when we're in high school and we think we're invisible and, and we just go full bore ahead and we never see or hear from God or anything else. You know, um, Not all high schoolers are like that. I was. Uh, so this thorn in Paul's flesh, God leaves it because God can use sickness to speak to us or to guide us or to lead us, just like Chris was sharing in, in regards to his business venture. So obviously this passage is not saying it's a, it's a blank blank ticket where you can just prescribe your own healing if you have enough faith. That's just not true. So there's a lot of confusion around this passage, so we're going to try and unpack it kind of bit by bit. And here's just the first thing. First thing I'd point out is this passage is about prayer. The point of this passage is prayer. It's, it's not about sickness. It's not about healing. It's about prayer. James's gospel is talking about all these things, and it culminates with you need to take this stuff to God. If you're happy, praise him. If the circumstances are bad and you're in trouble and you're suffering, then pray to him. Either way, you're looking to God. It's, it's kind of on this teeter-totter. Someone stole my, my pad of paper that I had in the first service. But it's, when one goes up, you're praising. If it goes the other way and circumstances change, then you're praying. But either way, you're going to God. God is where you're focusing your attention. It's where you should be wherever you're at, whatever the circumstances are at. You should never walk away and kind of leave God. And that leads into the second thing. The second thing here is that the the words used for prayer, there's three different Greek words used for prayer. But they're all in the present imperative tense, which basically means you don't just pray. So it's not like, you know, things are going good. And then, oh, now I'm in trouble, let me pray. It's, you're always praying. You keep praying. It's an ongoing action. It's just a part of what you're supposed to be doing. It's part of life. You take it to God. And I, I heard a joke about marriage um, like from a, a guy that's Norwegian. And he said, in, in Norway, the men are a certain way. And, and so they don't necessarily say, I love you to your wife. They kind of say, you know, when we got married, I said, I love you. If anything changes, I'll let you know, you know. Um, and I think sometimes we do that with God. It's like, you know, we think we pray one time and, you know, circumstances change. God, I'll come back and talk to you. But it's whether it's good, whether it's bad, we're going back to God. Present imperative. It's an ongoing thing. So the verse that we kind of made the life verse for our oldest daughter, who, by the way, was in the service last week, my five-year-old and my four-year-old, and, and she comes running up afterwards, Daddy, 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 I, I heard you speak. I'm like, really? And she goes, yeah, I got tired in the middle. <laughs> I was like, sweet. Um, anyways, the life first for my eldest daughter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, it says this, rejoice always, kind of exactly what James is saying. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in all circumstances, good and bad, give thanks. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in all circumstances, give thanks. And that's what this passage is about. The passage is about prayer. That's where it's aiming. And so the second thing is, the point is prayer. 
what we're praying about are our weaknesses, our circumstantial suffering and our weaknesses. Our circumstantial suffering and our weaknesses. Now, here's where it gets a little confusing because in the English translation here, we use the word sick. Is any one of you sick? Then let him pray. If anyone is sick, he should call the elders to pray for him. And so we, we kind of fixate on this idea of physical ailment. Does that make sense? Well, this the book of James in the context is driving us more towards a suffering angle. And you don't really see it in this translation. So just backing up real quick, a word about translations. Uh, um, the NIV I love for one reason because it's readable, and I hate it for the same reason. And in Greek, the word order of sentences is all jumbled up. So if they want to put a, a priority on something like what we would use italics for, okay, they would move it to the front of the sentence. And so they would, they would shove it to the front of the sentence, and that means this is the real important thought. But you knew kind of what it connected to, like what this adverb or adjective connects to, because the, the endings at the back of the verb or the back of the noun, etc., go together. So you can figure out what the sentence is saying. But they put words at the beginning for emphasis. So when you're translating into English, it, it gets kind of weird. You know, it's... It, it, what I'd say is it's wooden. If you're going to try and do a, what's called a literal translation, you try and just literally translate it down kind of word for word, it's really not that readable in English for, for a couple other reasons too. And so the other philosophy of translation is what's called dynamic equivalent. And what a dynamic equivalent tries to do is they try to do thought for thought. So we're giving you the, what, what the Greek is saying, but we're putting it into the way English like would read comfortably. Does that make sense? So a literal translation on one side tries to keep the integrity of the Greek language the best. Uh, a dynamic equivalent translation on the other end is highly readable, um, but, but they kind of play around so that it fits kind of the way we talk. Now, I, I read out of a dynamic equivalent. I, the NIV I love. It expresses the thought well. When you get to a passage like this, though, it's not helpful. So it begins with, if any one of you is in trouble. Now, the word there is kakapatheo, which is suffering. And if you look up just a little bit then um, to verse 10, just a few verses earlier, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And then he goes on and talks about Job. So James is kind of saying suffering, 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 suffering. And so when you're looking at the Greek, you see this is the train of thought where he's going and what he's saying. And then you get to the English translation and it's suffering. And we always use what? Synonyms. You're not going to use the same word over and over. You kind of, well, I use suffering. Now I use trouble. They mean the same thing. And you kind of move on. And you miss that this is really where James is driving is this idea of suffering. And so... That's kind of how it should be translated. And if you get, have the NASB, if any, any of you do, or the, the ESV, more literal translations, they'll use the word suffering because they want you to pick up on that, that pattern that's going on there. So James starts his book in verse 1 saying, I'm writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered. They've endured persecution. They've been scattered. They've gone every which way, and they're being blasted for being Christians. They're being blasted for being uh, in some sense, illegal within the Roman Empire. They're being blasted by all these different things. And I'm writing to them with a pastoral heart. And then the very next wor- uh, verse is, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And so he goes right after it with, what I'm here to talk to you about is your life circumstances that aren't necessarily easy. The, the suffering and the testing and the trials, consider it pure joy. And, and, you, and then he's coming back at the end here and saying, you praise God when it's going well, and when it's not going well, you pray to God. And so I think I've got kind of a pattern of, of how James is working through. Did you already show that? Or No. It says this, in the midst of difficult situations that demand patience, chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, rather than complaining, verse 9, or resorting to oaths, verse 12, let your yes be your yes and your no be a no, the believer should turn his attention to God. So I sum that up by saying pressure ought to drive us to prayer. And so the whole context of James is driving towards this idea of suffering that what we're talking about is circumstantial things that are difficult and we're praying about that. The second part is this, weakness. Why do I use the word weakness? The word weakness here is the same word that's translated, um, the word sick, I'm sorry. I, I use the word weakness because in James, they talk about if anyone is sick. Now, the, the word James uses for sick is the same word that's used weak in Romans 14.1 except him whose faith is weak. And what that basically means is like immature, not complete, unstable, weak. Paul uses it again in 1 Corinthians 8, 11 through 12, where he says, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. If, if he's got like just this really baby conscience and by you doing something that you know is okay and all this other stuff, that guy's just going to get thrown off. He's immature. His, his faith is weak, Right. That word weak is the same word that James uses for sick. Now, that's why we get into this, such a confusion. Our word sick means what? It means, you know, stick out your tongue, say ah, do a couple coughs, you know, get a, a culture for strep throat. or It means the flu. It means winter and bend. It means sick. Now, the word here means physical sickness, but it's so much broader than that. It's, it's immature, it's weak, it's thrown off, it's unstable. It's, it's that whole idea of not being whole. Does that make sense? It's that whole idea of not being whole, and a part of that might be physical ailment, but it's so much broader than that. And so we come to this and we think it's all about physical thing, and it's like, no, it's about suffering and trials and circumstances and being weak, Weak in the faith, immature, you've fallen and made a mistake. That's why it goes on to talk about sins. And it's, it's this broad kind of category. And when we just drive at it and just see the one, we've got it all wrong. So it's kind of like those, those little toys that have the sand in the bottom, you know, and they like make themselves right side up. You know, you throw them and somehow it's like a buoy, you know, it finds itself right side up. Well, these are both it, suffering, weakness, immaturity, and physical ailment. They're both parts of it, but it's supposed to be aligned this way. You know, and so if you do, if we treat this just as physical ailment and sickness, and we're going to go to this paragraph just for that, it's like trying to dive at the jelly in a sandwich, and you're missing the whole idea here. Okay, it's a part of the sandwich, but it's a sandwich though. It's not just the jelly, and so that's important because everyone's going to this thing and just saying it's about sickness. But the first point is it's about prayer. This paragraph. And what we're praying about are our, our circumstantial suffering and our weakness. And then the, the next thing is this. It can lean on others. Prayer 
can lean on others. And it falls right out of this whole definition of that word sick or weak or immature. Because James basically says if you're sick, if you're weak, if you're immature, instead of praying for yourself, go grab some other people to pray for you. Well, why would he say that? We're about to learn that the prayer of one righteous person is powerful and effective. So why would James now say, go find other people? He says, go find other people because of the definition we just gave to that word sick. If you're immature, weak, fallen off, maybe sinned, um, gone astray, you're not the righteous person, are you? So you go find other people and you lean on them and you let them pray for you. See, you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It doesn't work. And if somebody's gotten themselves flipped upside down, you got to go get other people to flip your right side again. It's a fascinating thing with sheep. Um, sheep are, are, are really interesting in that they're, they're balanced, their center of gravity. If they lay down on the wrong kind of incline and they roll so that they're up on their back, they won't be able to get right, right set up again on their feet. And it's called, to- like when a sheep gets tossed is what it's called, technical language that I have no idea. I just read it somewhere. I didn't grow up in Primal. The sheep gets tossed and its legs will flail around and eventually because of its weight being on its back like that, it'll just die. I mean, isn't that crazy? So one of the things a shepherd does is he has to check his sheep and make sure they're all right. And if if a sheep is tossed, he goes up to it, puts it right side again, might need to rub the legs, massage the legs so it can get going and, and it's healthy and it's fine and everything else. Now, David being a shepherd, when he writes Psalm 23, and he says, He restores my soul. What he's talking about is when I get tossed, when I get thrown upside down, and I can't get right side again, my legs are flailing, I don't have it in me. I can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps, can't turn myself right side up again. When that happens, God, you know, the shepherd comes and he restores my soul. And I think James is talking about much the same thing as if you're, if you're weak and if you're immature, if you've gone astray, if all these other things, call others to come in and set you right side up again. And somewhere in that process, there's going to be forgiveness of sin. It's going to be healed. You're going to be made right with God. Because if you've gone astray, and if there's separation between God and you, there's, there's sin somewhere. You know, we don't like using that word these days, but guess what? If you and God aren't talking, it's, it's on your end. And so either you can't stand to look at God because you feel guilty, or you're just mad and don't want to look at God because you don't want to admit, you know, where you're heading and where you're going. Whatever it is, if there's a break in that relationship. Sin is there somewhere. And here you are tossed, and James says, call the elders in, and they'll pray for you, they'll anoint you, and you'll get set right again. Because these sins are going to be forgiven and your relationship with God is going to be established. That's a part of that process. Because that's what God wants. God wants us with Him. And so these people that are understanding the will of God, these, you know, these righteous men, these strong people that are coming in and they're going to pray for you in faith. They know what God wants. They know where you're at. They're going to be able to address that, draw it out and say, you know what? Let's, let's not walk down that road anymore. Let's set you right side up on this road with God. And so that's what James says. And so corporate prayer is a big deal. It can lean on others. 
our need for prayer. There's somebody that came into the office a week ago. I didn't ask her yet if I could use her name, so I won't. But someone came into the office and um, I had a I had a piece of paper for every staff member. Color, well laid out, multiple colors, and a whole sheet of paper for every single staff member. Put your name, put your birthday, what, what can I be praying about for you? What are some aspects of your job? All these other things. And this person was going to take these and be able to pray over the staff members. And I get excited about that because I think prayer is first and foremost between an individual and God. If you're in trouble, if you're suffering, pray. But there's obviously a time and a place where others praying on your behalf is huge. And so we've got staff people that are running hard and they're burning themselves out and they're, they're drained and they need to be filled back up or whatever's going on. And here you've got somebody that's lifting them up and praying for them. And I love it. I think it's really cool. Next thing is this. James goes on to say, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. We'll just read that whole little section there. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and that's energeo. The, the Greek word here is where we get our word energy. It's the, the prayer of this, this righteous man, the man that understands where God's going. It, it's got energy in it. It's going to go somewhere. It's going to do something. And he gives this example of Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us, the person sitting next to you. As, as a person, just like Elijah. Isn't that wild? He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So here's this example. This one individual prays that there's not going to be any rain, there's no rain for three years, prays again, and now there's rain. Now, I don't think James chose Elijah as an example just because it was one of many. Okay, the story with Elijah is this. Uh, there's all this idolatry in the land. They're worshiping all these foreign gods. And so God says there's sin. There's a break. See, here's sin. There's a break. And, and that's not good. And I'm going to judge that. And I'm going to knock people on their backs. There's going to be a drought. There's going to be a famine. So he has Elijah pray. And there's no rain for three years. Now, Elijah goes after three and a half years, and, and he has this kind of showdown with the prophets of Baal, and it establishes that, that their gods are kind of, in a sense, false gods. There's nothing going on. And Elijah kind of, kind of is vindicated in this. And now that this has been shown and in some sense healed and dealt with the sin of the land, now Elijah goes and let's pray for rain. It's just like the passage he was talking about. If you're thrown off... Okay, and there's drought and there's famine and there's a breach in your relationship with God. Go and get someone to pray for you because I want to reestablish a thing. So Elijah prays and there's this little cloud. He keeps praying and then there's a bigger cloud and here comes the rain. And that's kind of the definition of the righteous man. Because he was asked to pray or, or God's whole intention in him praying for the, the drought or the famine was God's will. For him praying that the rains would come was God's will. And so you see kind of a similar thing with Jesus' last prayer. He's all by himself um, praying the night before he's, you know, he's going to be handed over and all that stuff. And he's kind of like, I don't like this plan. Me dying isn't exciting right now, God. Have you ever prayed these prayers, you know? Um, if there's a plan B, God, <laughs> I opt for plan B, you know. And, but, and this is where Jesus kind of throws in this body. He says, but God, your will be done, not mine. Whatever I got to do to be in line with you, that's what I'll do. 
And so this is kind of what Elijah did. He was praying in line with where God would have him, what God's will would be. And this is, I think, what James is saying, a righteous man, someone who's in tune with God's values and where God would be, not trying to offer, I'll pray for you and you're going to experience healing. You know, give me, come give me money or, or anything silly like that. It's a righteous man saying what God wants for you is not that you can have an eternal life. And he might not even want that this thorn is going to come out of your side, this, this thing that's really making it hard for you. But I do know, the righteous man does know that God wants you with him. He wants that relationship. And if you're upside down because of your own sin or because somebody else is persecuting you or because circumstances have tossed you, I do know that God wants you right side up. And God wants you experiencing that relationship with him. And I will come in, I will dialogue, we'll t- I'll pray for you, I'll restore you to God. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but I can be there and do that for you. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It has energy. It's, it's got dynamism in it. It's going to do something. It's not going to be ineffectual. And so here's an example. Yesterday, um, Kim and I, got to go uh, meet for lunch with Peter Casaviru. I don't necessarily know how to say that. And, and Peter is the pastor of the Gaba Church over in Uganda. Um, he's the one that, that started that church. It's now a couple thousand people. They birthed Africa Renewal Ministries. And he's the primary visionary leader guy that started that whole thing. The guy, Fred, that came over last year was kind of the executive director. you know. And so Peter's kind of the visionary. And we're meeting with Peter and he flies out Monday, so we got to have this lunch. And he's telling this story. There was 20 people in the church. And there's, it's Gaba's a fishing village right by Lake Victoria. And it's, there's all these witch doctors and all these little shrines. And, and he's saying, we got 20 people, and there's this witch doctor right next to us, and we're just lost in this. And nobody will come to us because there's so much confusion. And he says, we finally just decided to start praying and give it over to God. And so they started praying on Fridays. And a couple Fridays later, they hear all this commotion. They come out. And the witch doctor's little shop with the thatch huts on fire. And they're like, whoa, no, that's pretty cool. And, and they keep praying. And then like down by the shores are where all these little huts are because it's a fishing village. And that's the whole idea with the witchcraft. We're offering things so that the fishing will go well. And, and they're like, man, what do we do? Look at that. It's just a nightmare of all these little huts and shrines. And, and then they hear bulldozers come. And, and the Ugandan government came in and wanted to put a water treatment plant right there. And they bulldozed over like the... The shrines are like, no way. And pretty soon, you know, now the church, after 15 years, a couple thousand people and has a global ministry. You know, a prayer of a righteous, humble man in line with what God wants and trusting God to work is an amazing thing, you know. And, and so here's the, the next part, the last verse, verses of James. And the last verses of James say this, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. If you're that person that can come along and set people right side up again, that's just like the deal and nothing else really matters. And so many a touchdown has covered some mistakes. You know, Kip used to play football. And, uh, and he used to get touchdowns too, actually. He's got a video to prove it. Um, but, you know, a coach isn't going to really nitpick about the mistakes when there's touchdowns, you know. And so that's a beautiful thing to come along and be a part of that. So here's a part of the story with Pastor Peter that was so crazy. So that witch doctor whose uh, house burned or, or hut burned, his son ended up as being one of the, the children in the child sponsorship program. Ends up 
um, getting saved, becoming a Christian, and and ends up a part of African Renewal Ministries. And then recently, the father was writing out kind of um, the will. Here's my legacy. Here's what I'm going to leave to my kids and all this stuff. And he was the eldest born, and he was going to get all of this stuff, the, the family trade. And the son says, no, I, I can't inherit that. Uh, I'm a Christian. And it's just kind of amazing story of these people just loving on others and loving on them and giving to them. And people say, well, why are you doing that? And then they answer, well, our boss kind of told us to. You know, well, who's your boss? Well, God. Well, what God? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Um, so it's, it's an amazing thing. The power of the prayer of a, of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Here's where we'll just close. This whole idea of James culminating with prayer is amazing because James is driving this idea that it's always, again, it's ongoing. It's that relationship with God. We should continually pray. And I think he says it best earlier in the book in chapter 4, verse 8, where he quotes the Old Testament, James does, and he says this, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God says, you draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And so if you're beat up, you go to God. And if you've stumbled, you need to admit it. And if you are weak, lean on others. And if you are suffering, you run to him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Father, we just recognize our own weakness and our own helplessness. We seek to draw near to you, and I just pray that we'd be able to initiate that with prayer, ongoing prayer, that you would make it easier for us to look to you. And as we look to you, may we truly see that you meet us there and that you desire to meet us there. And we pray that in Christ's name.